This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today is Wednesday, December 26th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Ashley Hales joins us to discuss the epidemic of loneliness afflicting our society. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by my co-host and our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> that, that was definitely like an NPR good morning. Happy, uh, what's it, Boxing Day in Canada. Shout out. And in the UK, too. Okay. There you go. All right. So who's our guest today? Our guest is Ashley Hale. She's a writer, speaker, pastor's wife, mother to four. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, and she lives in Southern California suburbs, helping her husband plant a church Resurrection Orange County. Uh, her writing has been featured in Books and Culture, among other prestigious outlets, and she's the author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Welcome, Ashley, and I just have one recommendation for your publisher. Yeah. The title should be Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land Where There's Never Enough. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. There SoCal. you go. That, yeah. that, that's Mark's opinion of SoCal, by the way. No, no, no. I'm living in a suburb. I've always lived in suburbs since, uh, whatever, for the last 30, 40 years I've lived in suburbs. And it, there is it's this... the, the too much is a good reality check on what is actually happening versus all of our, our desires. Right. <laughs> exactly. And if I recall, I think we ran a book excerpt of your latest book. Your family just recently moved there from... Salt Lake a few City? years ago. A few years ago. Yep. Okay. And the book kind of came out of that. All right. Well, I think as we'll get into in a couple minutes on the show, where we're actually geographically planted can have a lot to do with how we relate to people socially and personally. So I'm excited to talk about this today and to just call up something that I think is really important to get into. So earlier this year, the health insurer Cigna released a survey of 20,000 Americans. And here are some of the numbers that they found when they surveyed all these Americans. Nearly 50% of respondents reported that they felt alone or left out always or sometimes. More than half of the respondents, 56%, in fact, reported that they sometimes or always felt like the people around them were, quote, not necessarily with them. 40% of Americans said that they quote-unquote, lacked companionship, that they were, quote-unquote, isolated from others, and that, quote-unquote, relationships aren't meaningful. But loneliness isn't just an American epidemic. This spring, for instance, the United Kingdom appointed its first minister of loneliness. In Japan, they actually have a word for the increasing issue of people dying alone and remaining undiscovered for a long period of time. Even though loneliness is something that people feel year-round, perhaps no season elicits it more acutely than the holidays, a period which places a strong cultural emphasis on feelings of togetherness. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to get into the structural and existential reasons for our loneliness and what resources our faith brings to this issue. So, Mark, let's hear it when you, you know for this like gut check, especially about these statistics that came out. I'm, I'm curious what 
immediately felt true or not true to you about them? Well, they uh, definitely feel very true, both personally and having been a pastor and been involved in churches for some time. I, yeah, I do know that many people experience the season as loneliness. I think I told you the other week, uh, for some reason that I've not uh, explored adequately to understand, but I feel I always feel really lonely and sad on Thanksgiving Eve for some reason. So some of these things happen to us for reasons we're not even aware of, and but they just happen. And I guess my other reaction is, I don't know, obviously we have no way of knowing whether this these new stats are, are new or rising or increasing, or if people are just more sensitive to loneliness and don't think it should be a part of everyone's life. And previous generations just understood that it did, and so they didn't tend to spend a lot of time worrying about it. There's just a lot of dimensions to it that you uh, leave, leave one with many questions. I think my gut check would just be that regardless of whether these numbers have been around for the past 100 years or 200 years, or if this is something that happened five years ago, it doesn't really seem like it's that healthy of a thing, regardless. I mean, obviously, like, loneliness can be just, just feeling that sense of, like, social ostracism and exclusion and not feeling like you have good friends does not necessarily strike me as something that would be, <laughs> these numbers don't strike me as an indicator of a healthy society. So... Yeah, they, I think they are important metrics. You know, you I just to go on a tangent for a second. I just think about different numbers that we use to, to kind of describe societal health. I think the big one that people use is GDP, gross domestic product. I thought that was going to be a euphemism for something else. No, no it no, is literally like gross, gross, <laughs> gross depression, something or other. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, it, these numbers to me suggest that there might be other ways to look at a health of society beyond GDP. Exactly. No, that's a, that's a good point. All right, Ashley, I'm actually curious for you. When you hear numbers like this, what's your initial reaction? I mean, we're in a very kind of close-knit suburb. And what we've found, it's really fascinating here, starting a church, is people move here for community. They move here for their kids. They move here for all of the amenities. Um, and yet people are just as disconnected because of so many different factors, at least where we live, this frenetic activity, this lack of you know, slowing down and creating margin and space for one another. Um, it's been really fascinating just to see. I think for me, I've seen just in our own lives, trying to plant a church and trying to put down roots in a place. It feels even in a place that's created to create community, it feels like that is something that is always around the bend for the next, you know, the next little while. And that people are just doing very common things. Um, like, choosing to spend time with your neighbors or choosing to, you know, free up your schedule so that community is built um, seems really, really very challenging. <laughs> Did that surprise you when you moved from Utah to Orange County? Yeah. You know, I think what was fascinating that way is we are in a suburb that was built in the early 2000s. Um, people, you know, they move here because they want community versus older suburbs that just feel like all of these kind of nondescript track homes. And even the way that our geography in, in our particular neighborhood, it's helpful. It does help foster community as that, you know, the houses are turned towards one another in cul-de-sacs. But when you have no, you, you have no reason necessarily to go out and meet someone because you can just leave your garage and, you know, go to the next activity and come home and get back into your garage. Versus when we were in a city neighborhood, you like the bus stop let out right by us and there was a blind man who would come and we would like make sure he could, you know, cross the street. Okay. 
and there was a guy in a cape and, you know, all of these kind of oddities of city life um, helped you kind of get out of your own head and self and schedule. So it's fascinating to me that even though a place might be construed for community, it actually can tend to be just as individualistic and disconnected. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we know maybe all contribute in their own micro ways to these feelings of loneliness that people feel. I'm glad you got into geography for a second and we could definitely get back into that. What do we know today about Americans living situations, for instance, or the state and health of people's friendships, the state of their families and their marriages? What are you guys both thinking when you think of like, wow, 2018, this is kind of how, where, how and where Americans are relationally? Well, one thing, I, it would be interesting to do more of a study because I, I have had uh, Ashley's experience in the city when I've just visited uh, the nature of running into the same person in the same city block if you're going to the subway or whatever. Uh, I've also read stories about people living in apartment complexes in the city in which they simply do not know the name of the person living next to them. And that's been my experience in the suburbs as well. Although that part of that is, uh, it's personal. My wife knows the name of everybody on the neighborhood block, but I certainly don't. Uh, And that speaks partly to who I am and partly to who she is. But we do tend to form our communities of friendship, not in this day and age, not with the people we live around, but the people we share interests with. So our communities are very much around uh, church, church folks, churchy things. We have a lot of friends in those communities, but not many, not, I would say not any on our, in our actual neighborhood. Even just speak briefly about like generational differences as my kids are, they're turning into bigger kids and, you know, tech has become a thing. And we never had to figure that out as kids because there wasn't really the internet, but trying to figure out like how to, how to help kids have proper social interactions that aren't just behind screens, um, that they're not just texting one another. And I think that also plays a lot in this social isolation that you can just say something or text something, um, or you can interact on social media in a way that doesn't require a lot of, it doesn't push you to hard conversations because you can hide behind a screen in a lot of ways. And so trying for us as parents too to try to figure out what does it look like to help grow things in my own children so that they can have hard conversations. I feel like a lot of the loneliness that we've seen just in our neighborhood and church community has often tended from people not having, it feels like anyway, not having the skill set to, you know, engage with hard conversations to um, not bail on a community because it doesn't fit your particular kind of consumeristic preferences. So that's been a fascinating kind of part of this conversation of loneliness is how much is is it because we're opting out of community? There's a, another dimension, too, that was brought up in Sher- Sherry Turkle's book, Reclaiming Conversation. And that is we, uh, and when I say we, I include myself in this, is we, in many ways, prefer electronic communication because we can, we can control what we're going to reveal to others. And when you're actually in a conversation with people, things just start slipping out about what you think and, and <laughs> what you like and don't like. And you walk away from conversations saying, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Oh, I should have said this. You know, online email and social media conversations, I'm much more in control of letting people know who I am. And that's, that's not a good thing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're like curating our, ourselves to an extent. That's a common observation, but I, I have noticed that as much as I 
criticize social media for doing that. I, I see myself doing it every time I write email. Now, I do it for the best of reasons because I'm editor-in-chief of Christianity <laughs> Today, and right. I, I can't be giving people a bad impression of me because then it's a bad impression of the magazine, etc. I have all sorts of justifications for doing it, but it's in the end, it's probably not uh, as healthy as it could be. I have one question for both of you. My experience, I've noticed recently in thinking about my own uh, habits and predilections and frankly, sins, you know, self-examination times, I notice that there are many times at home where my wife starts talking to me and I'm, I'm, I'm on the computer, or I'm reading a book or something, and I will put the book down or I'll shut the computer laptop and look at her intently and notice that my mind is still buzzing with the thing I was just doing. So in that sense, I'm not really engaging. I'm sort of got this list of to-do things, either I'm to-do I'm reading or I'm doing projects around the house or... And uh, I'm just wondering, is that a, is that a more, I would, I'm not asking you to psychoanalyze me, but is that a pro, one product of our busyness of our age that we can't really focus on another person because we've got other things we need to attend to? Or is that a personality quirk that just some of us have? I honestly think it depends on like what the nature of it is. And it's to your credit that you actually put down the thing that you're doing. I mean, I've had many a conversation and been on both ends where you're talking to someone and you're watching TV or on your phone at the same time. Yeah. Never reading a book. I've never seen someone try to read a book at the same time <laughs> and have a conversation. But for some reason, you feel like you can get away with it by looking at your phone and your No, 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 no. Not only can you get away with it, you could actually do it. I don't <laughs> think most people would think that you could actually <laughs> read a book and do it. I don't, I'm like telling you this and I'm like, that is so strange to me how we think we can both watch TV and have a conversation. But somehow that feels more uh, possible. It's strange. I don't know if I necessarily experience exactly what you're talking about, but there are definitely times when it's just hard to be in the moment, for sure. I think I'm just so accustomed to the fact that I'm very rarely in moments. I mean, there are even times where I'm having relatively deep conversations with people and asking them questions that I feel like I can kind of do that with like 60%. Yeah. <laughs> of my attention yeah, span. Yeah. You know, I, I can catch just enough of what they're saying that I can ask questions from that and probably give off the appearance that I'm pretty present, but may not necessarily be as checked in as they assume that I am. It's such a gift, though. I was just thinking, like, being sustained attention towards people or even the task at hand is really a gift. And it's really, it seems like a lost art, unfortunately, in kind of the frenetic pace of our of our modern age. And what it does, I think it ends up leaving both parties more lonely because I think the receiving party... You may think you're fooling the receiving party, but I get it. If they were to really, if you were to really ask deeply, they'd say, I'm not quite sure that person was listening to me as much as I thought they were. I don't know if they really get me. And certainly as a person who's having a hard time focusing, I'm isolating myself from that person. So I think it does contribute in very subtle ways that we're not even aware of. The, talking about social media and the internet age and the way that our attention spans, you know, have, um, I think the Atlantic had something a few years that came out about Google ruining our minds. And I think the idea there is we have become almost trained to go from one thing to another, that it is hard to have the same amount of sustained attention to people or to ideas or, you know, difficult prose. So I think it's just like this perfect storm of loneliness that, you know, we we have lost attention spans. We have also, we are in a highly post-industrial age that our value is seen by how busy we are. We have tended to be much more of an individualistic culture. And so, you know, my own desires and my plans matter more than the good of the community. 
people are not going to church as much in America. And so all of these things, I think, have just created all of these ways in which we are less connected naturally. And so it makes sense that people are lonelier, but we don't, we tend to not want to put in, you know, the effort to think hard or the effort to like say no to some activity or to even pay attention to that there might be someone down the block who you haven't seen for a while and what's going on there. Yeah. So when we're we're talking about loneliness, there's kind of just so many different tiers of it to explore and to go into. And one of the ones that I wanted to talk about was about the loneliness of how we live to some extent. And so when the Census Bureau released some data about one-person households, they did this back in 2013, so this is about five years ago, they found that in 1970, the percentage of people who made up like of like one-person households essentially was 17% of the American population, and that that had grown to 27% in 2012, which is something that I think is really interesting. They also found in that same time period that previously... In 1970, when they had when the census had done their big questionnaire, 81 percent of I guess all households were family households, meaning uh, mother, father, and children. I don't know if it necessarily it doesn't say like traditional or. I'm just wondering how it relates to the to the. Uh, I think what it means is that they living were living alone. with children. It was at least one adult living with children. Okay. And then that number had dropped to 66 percent by 2012. So the number, so there'd been a 10% point increase in the number of one-person households over the past 40 years. And for those in family household, it had decreased by 15 percentage points. So do we know if that's from, you know, the elderly population, like losing family members? Or, you know, is it a combination of that with, you know, young people choosing to live alone? The first theory that had been floated or explanation that had been floated was just that the average age of marriage had changed during that time. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure what this was happening at this time. I do think it's interesting that this article that I'm pulling it from literally has (laughs) um, this line in here, more people living alone could be good for business. (laughs) (laughs) there's your gdp right (laughs) exactly and then there's another one good for business possibly not so good for the environment like (laughs) i guess it just seems like those are such like interesting metrics to decide if that is a good thing or a bad thing (laughs) it's amazing yeah rather than i don't know other metric rather than like using these loneliness statistics for instance you know to decide if this is a good trend or a bad trend especially in a country founded on our uh our pursuit of happiness. And I guess, let me just read you. This is actually from a a piece on CBS that was published back in 2013. And at the end of it, it just says, Euromonitor International List of Factors Currently Contributing to the Global Trend Include Increased Standards of Living, The Growing Tendency of Younger People to Focus on Education and Careers While Delaying Marriage, The Rise in Global Female Employment, and The Growing Ability of Women to Support Themselves in an aging population that has led to more elderly people living alone. So I think that kind of touches on some of the stuff that you were talking about. That's just interesting to me about how our our living patterns have shifted. And then the technology point is interesting to me and that even for those of us who are then living with other people, we can then be isolated from those other people too, right? So those are those are affecting everyone um, at the same time. And then, of course, you know, 
we're, we've been talking about suburban versus city thing. And, and that's interesting to me because that's the people who we live among, right? We don't necessarily live with and the extent that you see them or not. We can live those lives, you know, Mark, that you talk about where you see a decent number of people. You know, you have friends, you're busy, you're at work, and yet you can still feel, one can still feel lonely. I do think standard of living does play a factor that just brought to mind. I think our goal, and a goal I've avidly pursued for right or wrong, is to get to a position in life where you don't have to depend on other people or borrow stuff from other people. But you live in a culture in which borrowing and lending is just part and parcel of the culture, often do because not everyone can own this tool or that or this piece of equipment or that that you actually need only once or twice a year. In those situations where you don't have everything, you are, in a sense, forced to go over to the neighbor's house. Can I borrow your snowblower? It's really a mess today. And it, before you do that, you know you have to establish some sort of relationship. So the standard of living does allow us to not need anyone else. And that's a very practical... And our, country is, our country's economy is really good at raising people's standard of living. It's just an extraordinary vehicle for doing that. But it has this deleterious effect, I think. Yeah, I'm totally with you, Mark, except on the exact opposite end, <laughs> where <laughs> probably I rely on people to a fault too much. But I also have not necessarily felt like it was a thing that was bad because I've directly seen how it like closens my relationship with people. For instance, many people know that listen to the show, I don't have a car. And so people do drive me places, drive me home from events, or they drive me to the train if I there's too much snow on the ground. And to me, that's been a key time where I've been able to develop relationships with different coworkers or with some of my friends. I can't tell you how much I really enjoy going to an event and then getting a ride home from someone and having that one-on-one -on -one time with them and debriefing with them and talking with them about what that event has looked like, I know has been really great at just kind of like reestablishing a friendship or relationship at that point. In my experience, people really enjoy feeling needed and feeling integral. I don't think anyone wants to feel like they are someone's primary provider for any type of thing. And there's obviously a way that you can go about abusing favors and I have probably been guilty of that in my life. But I do know, on the other hand, that it, it doesn't also feel good to feel like you're in, you know, to feel that you are dispensable, you know, and that if you can have something that you can offer to people, people are usually interested in being able to offer that to you. So, Ashley, what are some of the ways that you've seen the church inadvertently kind of perpetuate loneliness? We are kind of in the land of um, mega churches, where at least where we are. Um, and what's been interesting about that is I think that has worked well, that form of church for a particular kind of generation and time. But yet we have seen a lot of people, you know, in their 30s and 40s kind of flock to kind of the megachurch experience as a way to simply kind of take church into this kind of consumer model. Like I get a date basically at church, you know, I get to drop my kids off, get my latte and sit and hear a nice little inspirational message. And so there's there's been a sense, I think, of our church structures have sometimes made people more lonely, right? That they can just kind of come as they please, that, you know, if if they're really unknown, if they're not getting plugged into any smaller forms of community, if you are at a large church, is to say that basically we want church to be like this customizable religious experience for you instead of saying that this is the bride of Christ that it's going to be painful to be a part of, um, that it is one of the only organizations, right, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are getting together amongst um, different socioeconomic um, and race racial differences. 
And so I think there's something so beautiful about saying, I want to be in, you know, in a local church or I want to be known in a smaller version, you know, if, if you are at a larger church, um, because otherwise we're not actually growing in Christ. It's just what kind of feelings can I whip up? You know, the, the ways that we think we're creating community in larger structures, but if we don't have smaller structures for people to be known, then we're going to, we're simply perpetuating kind of this very shallow, um, lonely existence, even in the church. What are some of the ways that in your guys' church that you're working to, to foster genuine community with the people there? A lot of it too is we just are really encouraging our people to to be present in their neighborhoods to get to know. We read the Art of Neighboring in small groups, um, a book that just talks about you know get to know the eight houses around you, um, and just asking people to say, hey, part of what it means to love Christ and His church is to also be a good neighbor. So how can you show up to things like we walk our kids to school, they go to the local public school, we stick around for the flag ceremonies and. Just small things. My husband works in a few local establishments um, when he's writing his sermons to get to know people. So those are the sorts of things that we've just tried to make habits in our life to extend ourselves and see people so that you run into people. You know, he's become kind of the, you know, quote unquote counselor at various (laughs) coffee shops and pubs um, just because he's there and he's willing to listen and see people. So I think it's really a lot of small acts of presence um, that you can do in your neighborhood um, and even amongst people at church, you know, like instead of just bolting, you know, and have a cup of coffee after and ask someone questions about themselves that really can be a way for people to be seen um, and then to begin to grow in relationships. All right, Ashley, you're just getting a little personal now, so let's just let's just tone it down here, okay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> People did say my book was a little bit ouchy, so, you know, I guess that's where I go. <laughs> okay. I need to be more friendly. I get it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. I did think when you were talking about these things that there is a certain anxiety that I know many people feel about putting themselves out there and about not necessarily knowing how to make the first move when you talk to strangers. I personally like to meet strangers a lot, but I and I do challenge myself to to go places alone and then try to figure out how I'm going to talk to people because even I who am very comfortable talking to people I don't know, have to still kind of like figure out how I'm going to approach people, what I'm going to talk to people about, and and how the conversation's going to flow from there. But my concern, you know, is that I, I'm just remembering going to church as a kid and we would have Krispy Kreme donuts, which, you know, at one point was like a very great lure to get people to stick around. 
I think people often do have to be coached a little bit more, though, than even having food. You know, you you can make that eye contact when you see people, or sorry, refreshments. I actually think meals are very helpful in that respect because most people don't eat meals standing up. Like, it's possible to drink your coffee standing up and to eat your donut standing up. But a meal implies sitting down, and most of the time it's a little bit easier to talk to new people if you're sitting down for whatever reason than it is to just, like, kind of make um, some sort of pass while they're filling up with, you know, getting their coffee or whatever. That's the type of stuff that I do really appreciate when churches pay a lot more attention to, you know, like how do you help people who are really going to feel awkward talking to people that they don't know? How are you going to do as much of the work as you can for them to make that as possible? There's another family who moved from Salt Lake City uh, with us to plant Res OC, and we met them in our church in Salt Lake City. We had over the winter, we had like it was soup every, you know, every Sunday for a few months. And so we would, different people would take turns making, making huge pots of soup for everybody. And that allowed us, right, to get to know each other, you know, and that over several years, we became good enough friends that they were like, sure, we'll jump on your crazy bandwagon and plant a church with you. But I think that's exactly right, too. It also gives, you know, if you're eating with someone, they can always hide behind their food and eat, you know, so it gives them kind of the space to begin to grow in relationship um, without being like, here's my 20 questions, ready, go. And yeah, you feel like more turned off maybe than less lonely. (laughs) I wonder if uh, this would be something I'm just uh, guessing at, and it would be interesting to find out how true it is. If we've lost the art of conversation because parents no longer, I don't know, for whatever reason, I don't want to blame parents. It's just, it's not part of the cultural atmosphere to teach your kids how to have a conversation with other people. I remember when I was a pastor in uh, Mexico City and the church was had missionaries, but it also had uh, CEOs and uh, diplomats in their families. And I noticed that as as the youth pastor, when I would take those kids out for lunch, they knew how to have a conversation with another another adult, and they would they would ask me. In fact, if they spent, my, I had to learn to turn the conversation around because they learned how to ask questions about what I was thinking, what I was experiencing, what was going on in my life. They had obviously been trained by their parents who would live in uh, who have occupations that require relationships and meeting people and talking to them. They'd obviously learned a skill that I didn't learn growing up. I had to learn it slowly but surely. So all the people who grew up not learning how to have conversations are now adults. <laughs> well, that, and yeah, yeah they, they're af- one of the reasons we're afraid to just turn to someone in church or after church and walk up to them, ah, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to, uh, it's just, a, but of course having a conversation is, is a skill. It's like any, it's like woodworking. It's like learning how to make good coffee, whatever. It can, there are things you can learn and things you can do. Uh, now, that doesn't get you to a level of immediate intimacy where it solves everybody's loneliness problem, but it, it's the first step to get there. And I think just being willing to embrace awkward is always really great. And, you know, like we've said to various people in our block, like, we've lived here for three years and I forgot your name. I'm really sorry. I'd love to get to know you. Like, I'd love to know your name. Um, and just, <laughs> just saying, I'm sorry. You know, I should, we waved. This is awkward. Or like, you know, someone you sit by every week for church, I think it's fine to be like, own up to the awkward and it's okay. (laughs) And I've also been at churches that people wear name tags, you know, which to me is like, that's a, that's a church hack for me. Like, like that is a, a way that the church can make it a lot easier for people not to do that. If that's like that one barrier, right? Like, oh, I'm going to start avoiding this person (laughs) because I'm so embarrassed that I forgot their name. It, It can just make it feel that much that much more of a sigh of relief, you know, when you can just be like, okay, that is their name. I'm spelling it correctly. 
Of course, when you get to my age with my infirmities, I can always say, you know, I know we've met, but I'm taking medicine that... All right. That is actually <laughs> that not true. my memory here and there. Wow. Mark, it does not look that old. Sorry, Mark. You cannot get away with that. Okay. You can do it sarcastically, though. I'm sure that's probably what you end up doing. It is interesting to me. I have not been in a large church, I guess, traditional church. I've not been into a church that was like in a traditional church building for almost five years. And so I can't even imagine. But honestly. she does go to church, listeners. I am she's clarified what time She's a very church. devout person. Okay, let's just make this clear. Just because worry. she doesn't go to a mega church doesn't mean she's not a Christian. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. But I can't even imagine like what community looks like anymore when I think about right. mega churches. I go to churches that meet in people's homes. And that to me feels like, how to make relationships if I wasn't in people's homes and yeah, we just like church yeah. never started at the same time. And sometimes I wonder if church is actually going to start. And then at the end there's food and we talk, you know, an hour, two hours. I don't know. There's no, there's no agenda or place to be. And I, I can't imagine going back to a church where, you know, since they were running three different services, everyone kind of had to be shuffled out of the sanctuary at a particular time yeah. and moved along to the next program. That's just not at all the pace that I move at anymore when it comes to church. But that is a, not an untypical experience. I mean, one of the attractions of the megachurch is it reflects so much the mass nature of our life. I mean, we work in corporations, huge office buildings. We go to schools that are three, 4,000 kids in them, and we go to these huge class, you know, huge classrooms. And it's a very auditorium-like existence we live. And it's no wonder that a lot of people, when they're looking for a church, find the megachurch comfortable because it reflects other parts of their experience in school and at work. But I do agree. You, and so that's one of the reasons megachurches, one of the things they work at super hard is figuring how to get from there to the intimacy of knowing one another in Christ. It's just a huge ongoing challenge for, for the megachurch. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point about how megachurches really want to be able to offer community, right? I think that's really important. I think, they all, I think all pastors and staff on those church recognize they do not exist if they can't help people find community there. And like, that's a very good thing. But at the same time, they are taking on some of these like other norms and other parts of our life that aren't, there aren't designed to build community, I would say, you know, right. like the auditorium right. thing I thought was like really interesting point that you made, because when I think of an auditorium, you know, you think of like, you are, you are a little bit of a passive person in an auditorium, you're the spectator, right? And But if you're trying to build community, of course, people can't just see themselves as a spectator. They have to kind of like see themselves as an active participant in building that thing that happens. And if you're giving people all the subliminal cues of like, you're at a movie theater, for instance, you know, you're watching a play. When I go to that, <laughs> I like to meet people everywhere, but it's not designed for that experience to happen. And if transformation happens, it's purely individual. Mm. There isn't a sense of corporate identity mm. often. That's the challenge of, of that space. You know, the idea that you're coming to consume a religious experience um, and it doesn't have to, the size of a church doesn't necessarily indicate what's going on. But I think, you know, worship services can be structured in such a way that you feel that you are participating in it, that you are amongst it, that you are, you know, experiencing the grace of God through the sacraments and the preaching of the word. And, you know, that that there is a welcoming also just community and vibe that you get from like, this is the culture of a, of a particular congregation versus like, I'm going to, you know, have this kind of emotional experience with God um, and get some great tidbits about the Bible or about living well. 
and then I can leave. Um, and so when it's kind of the revolving door of Christian experience versus how am I being welcomed into this story that we are participating in together? And there's just lots of really small things I think you can do throughout a worship service or even throughout the life of the Church of the Week that that changes the trajectory of what the Christian life looks like. Uh, you were talking about our discipleship is left up to ourselves, and I do know of one mega church who did a study of their church's uh, spiritual maturity and growth, and the, the the report came back that after the early years they'd stopped growing, and the one of the solutions that the churches it was to say that people have to learn to become self disciplers, which struck me as an interesting way to solve the problem mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with while not doing community, you know, without going around about community and that sort of thing. Struck me as a very bad bad phrase to use. I understood what he was getting at. That is to say, we have to we have to take some responsibility for our own spiritual growth. But to put it in such a term it was so classic, twenty first century American. It struck me as a <laughs> funny, to be frank. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I you know I think the church can do so much about being a place for lonely people. It doesn't mean necessarily we'll have the quote unquote success that we would see kind of in corporate America. But I think. The call for churches is to be a haven for lonely people. And that often means like creating a culture where people, you know, can have the awkward conversation who are going to people who aren't the quote unquote most successful looking um, to begin to provide the welcome of Christ before and after and, you know, throughout the week and texting each other. I think we can use all of these, you know, technology and everything to actually connect instead of perpetuating loneliness in our in our neighborhoods. Ashley, you spoke at the beginning of this podcast about the importance of having deep conversations, ones that help people become more introspective or give them an opportunity to share how they're actually feeling about the things that are going on in their lives. And in my experience, there's not a really widely known roadmap of how to open up those conversations with people. And Sometimes I think there can just be too many steps between seeing someone, you know, be it on Sunday morning or be it at, you know, some event that your kid is at or your neighbor passing between saying like from there and actually making coffee happen, right? Or grabbing a drink happen. Like that can just mm-hmm. involve too much work. And so then since we don't necessarily feel like, oh, I can just ask them about that thing, you know, while we're standing on the driveway and I don't really know how to get there we never actually end up talking about the things that we are actually really struggling with. I'm curious, with your instructions to kind of um, just lean into the awkwardness and so forth, what type of advice do you give to people to kind of just like go there and, and really kind of change the stakes of the conversations they're having? There are several things. And one, I think I've just realized is like, I like to, I like deep, deep conversations. I love connecting with people. And I have been burnt about like going there too quickly. And so I think it is important to create kind of this mutual trust and relationship before you're like, and tell me all of the issues of your soul. <laughs> but um, I think part of it looks like for us anyway, certain just habits that we've tried to do is like we walk our neighborhood. And I know that's not always super conducive in everybody's neighborhood, but we walk around so that we are seeing the same people so that you can begin small talk. You can begin getting to know people. My husband is like our little neighborhood's neighborhood representative. And so we got to know the other person, the neighborhood rep, um, because we had the, you know, hey, we're both repping this neighborhood. Let's get together. Let's get our families together. 
Um, and we had a really fun evening with them, um, just inviting them into our home that throughout the last year or two has um, allowed us to get to know more neighbors. And it's allowed, as we're able to kind of keep getting to know that one family in particular, they've ended up showing up to church a few times, which has been really cool. So I think a lot of it is just really small things done in succession over a long period of time, like being around the same people, um, choosing to stay put and to start really small in whatever kind of new habit that you want to develop, not moving on to bigger and better or cooler friends. Um, So for us, it's walking, it's choosing to eat with people. um, And that often means like, the cup of coffee around the neighborhood or, you know, in a workspace, um, my husband, you know, showing up to the same pub or the same coffee shop that he's just eating next to people that eventually you can start asking people questions about themselves. And then you listen, you know, I think we have lost the art of listening. We listen well for, cause we know that, you know, as we casually, casually mentioned to people, that we go to church or we say something about Jesus or we talk about our Sundays and what we do. Eventually, you know, as we are in those same spaces, there will be little bits of places where as we listen, we can kind of talk about our faith in ways that then we're safe people when they have questions about what does it mean? What does this faith mean for you? Or, you know, you seem like you, you know, belong to a a group and I kind of, I missed that from, you know, growing up in church or whatever it may be. So I think we walk, we keep showing up in the same places and we start listening well to those around us. Really basic stuff, <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard to do. I can give a couple secrets too, which is just that a lot of people actually give you far more information than they think they're giving you when they answer questions. I think of like the the traditional questions, like how is your holidays, right? And people will almost always give you an answer that you could then can use to skip to the actual question that they think you want to answer. But if you actually listen to what they say, there's far more to lean into. So. Sometimes people might say like, wow, it was a lot. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Yeah, then I just say, exactly. I just say like, yeah. oh, like, oh, how so? What happened? And then I start asking other questions like, you know, oh, did you have all your family in? And then that doesn't matter whether they had their family in or not. You know, you start to know like, well, it was a lot because they visited their family or they didn't see their family or, you know, I just feel like American culture, at least... <laughs> in the circles that I run is one that always is like trying to accommodate for the sense of like, oh, people don't actually want to hear about your personal life. So there people will take all these kind of like ways to help you on the other end, like not go any further. I don't think necessarily because they're just uncomfortable, but they're like uncomfortable with you being uncomfortable, having to be uncomfortable (laughs) listening to, you know, a story that you didn't want to hear or being bored or something like that. But I had multiple conversations with people just coming back from Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago where people did want to share what happened and some of the tensions and stress that they had faced and headaches and family situations. And I was surprised by how much people ended up revealing and sharing in two or three minutes, you know, that I knew it was just because like we kind of spent some time actually talking about what the holiday had looked like and not just running from the next thing or just like letting them pivot to, I don't know, something at work that we could have talked about instead. Were these women you talked to? No. Okay. Because my experience with talking with men is you have to be, you just have to be with each other for a while doing something that's not related to the conversation for that sort sort of conversation to take place. So I have had ended up to justify my golf habit when I used to golf. I don't golf nearly as much anymore, but I would just go out by myself and get hooked up with another group. And it was only after hole 12 or 13 that we actually started talking to each other about stuff that was kind of interesting. 
And I noticed that with my son when he was growing up. We'd go fish, we'd go off fishing to places like four or five hours away, first two or three hours in the car, complete silence. It wasn't until we'd been together, physically been together for three or four hours that conversation could start. So there are some of those differences that I'm sure transcend gender, but in my experience are related to gender. I remember hearing ones like that men tend to interact like shoulder to shoulder, whereas women, it's face to face. And that's been helpful to think about ways of connecting. Yeah, I, I think the big thing, just to take away as we kind of wrap up this conversation is it always seems like a good <laughs> reminder to assume that people do need more community in their lives. Um, and that we, we talked earlier a little bit at the podcast about people being busy, but obviously just because someone's busy or accomplished or whatever is nothing to say about if they're actually lonely or not and push past that anyway. I don't know. Just to, uh, to, to put it on the other end, it's not like we are capable of solving people's ultimate loneliness problem. We can certainly help alleviate some of its worst conditions. But as scripture points out, the psalmist often felt very lonely. Certainly Jesus felt lonely on the cross. Part of our job in helping people deal with their loneliness is not to solve their loneliness. Sometimes we can and should, but sometimes it's just saying, no, part of being a human being on this side of the this side of history is that we will have these experiences of loneliness. And you can maybe experience that loneliness with another person, but uh, oddly enough, we are not able to actually connect with people, other people at a level that could solve that problem. Certainly, God can do that for us, but even that is a spiritual experience that is alone. Someone, I was reading an interview with some marriage and relationship therapist a couple weeks ago, and she was talking about how people have skillfully decided to consolidate all these, you know, expect relational expectations that they used to have for communities onto one person that they marry. That does not sound like a good idea. <laughs> also sounds extremely unrealistic. And I think I like shared the article online and I was like, I really don't understand why people do this though, because I really think the joy is like having different people bring out different things in you, getting to know a, a larger community. And no doubt, <laughs> if you asked one person to do all that type of stuff, they would fail you and disappoint you in that area over and over again. Especially if you think that person is your spouse. That's a right. hopefully unrealistic expectation. <laughs> yeah. You know, loneliness, um, to the extent that it's not crippling for, you know, our mental and behavioral health is like can actually be a gift. Um, the gift in loneliness would be to draw us into relationship with God, um, that our loneliness might be one way to, that we get to the end of our rope and see our need for Jesus and for a larger community, either, you know, rather than just like your spouse or your children fulfilling you or, you know, particular best friend, um, all the different forms of community can be ways that we kind of are drawn into a wider faith in, in God and in his church. I have a friend who said she realized early on that there was nobody in the world, ultimately, who was going to be able to fully understand her in all dimensions of who she is. And that's one of the reasons she, uh, her faith in Christ was so important to her, because she, she understood that God was one person who knew, who knew everything about her and, and still loved her. Well, this has been a good conversation, everybody. Thank you so much for being willing to share many anecdotes from our own lives. It's been great. If you have feedback, again, you can leave that. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email, podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right. I just want to remind everyone this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And we are in the middle of our December issue right now, which has this 
a profile of a really amazing guy. I'm just going to read you the headline and deck. It says, No Time to Sit. Janitor by night, a leading refugee pastor mentors immigrant churches across America. And it is the story of Jean-Pierre Gatera. He was back in Kenya in the camp that he was a part of out there and then was resettled here in the United States two years ago. Mark, had you ever heard of him before we did this profile? No, I haven't. But I've uh, had the fortune of meeting many pastors like him. My wife works for World Relief to help resettle refugees in the country. And sometimes they turn out to be pastors of local churches, like the pastor of the local Chin Church here. And had interaction with him as he's trying to get a church up and started. So it's quite a daunting task to do that, but a really important ministry. Yeah, I think that just hearing about what these guys are continuing to do when they come to the U.S. is kind of astounding. I'll just read the first paragraph of this, which is kind of crazy. It says, no one naps on Saturdays in the Gatera family. If anyone has the right to is Jean-Pierre Gatera. Most weekdays, the 43-year-old drives his wife, Appleline, to her tomato packing job in Minneapolis at 6.30 a.m. Then he sends their kids, Joel, 15, Emanuela, 12, and Deborah, 8, off to school and does a few hours of work for his degree, a master's in leadership from Bethel University. He preps some rice and meat for dinner, since Appleline is usually exhausted when she gets home. Then, at 4.20, he leaves for work, waxing floors for a janitorial company, until 1 a.m. He sleeps about four hours a night. Yeah, that wouldn't be untypical because uh, most refugee families, both the husband and wife need to work. Sometimes the husband has to take two shifts. And then if you have an active interest in helping to establish a church, yeah, you're going to end up with four hours of sleep a night. So they're very heroic people. Check the article out. It's in our December issue. I think you will be inspired after reading it. You can do that again by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. Go ahead, Mark. Over the Christmas holidays, uh, I did get to listen to a Lessons in Hymns and Carols that we have at our church. It formed an indelible memory in my mind. It was so well done, not just professionally and musically, but it was very moving at parts to hear, to hear a rehearsal of the, of the Christian story in song and in scripture. Yeah, so let's, that definitely was a highlight of, uh, of the last couple of weeks. Any song? We heard a Nigerian Christmas song cool. uh, that, was, that was arranged just beautifully and powerfully. And another song, it's kind of a redundant title, but the, the song itself was beautiful. Christ was born on Christmas Day. It was also just a, wow. very, a very poignant Christmas carol. There's some really good Christmas songs out there. All right, Mark, where can people find you? I published something called The Galley Report. You can find it at Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. That's G-A-L-L-I, and where I link to stories, articles, and comment on them. All right. Ashley, do you have something that you would like to share? Yeah. So um, things that have been bringing me joy. I think the season has been just challenging for us um, personally. And so I've just really found some joy in very small things. Like um, I'm reading Fleming Rutledge's book, Advent and just enjoying being ministered to that. And then um, on a personal note, um, my daughter, my youngest child just turned five and she wanted real makeup. And so she has been putting sparkly gold eyeshadow on and it's hysterical and amazing. And it's, it's super joyful, <laughs> a mixed, you know, just hard stuff of life to be like, She's got sparkles. Life is good. <laughs> that is good, right? Just taking joy in her joy. Yes. And I'm sure she's applying it very well. As only oh, I, oh it's, am, it's amazing. <laughs> 
So, Ashley, where can we find you outside of this podcast? So my website is aahales.com. I'm on social media, Twitter, Instagram, aahales. And I have a podcast called The Finding Holy Podcast, which is a a really companion to my book, which is sold wherever books are sold, uh, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Very cool. So my precious moment is that I may have talked about this group before on the show. There's a group in Chicago called My Block, My Hood, My City. And one of their goals is to help Chicagoans get to know each other better and to create experiences where people in all different parts of the city can have reason to visit other parts of the city, which is not a very Chicagoan attitude. Let me tell you, there are lots of people who say, I already live in this part of the city. Everything that I want to do is in this part of the city. Why should I go to that part of the city? And that is a common attitude, regardless of what background you are and you know whether you moved to the city two weeks ago or whether you've lived in the city your whole life. I have encountered it from so many people or those people are weird. I, you know, they're not anything like us, which is also something that I roll my eyes at. Anyway, that is my own soapbox to go on. But my block, my hook, my city, one of the ways that they do create experiences for people to travel different parts of the city is they have these really interesting volunteer projects that they do. And so in the south side of the city, there's a street called Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard Drive, Drive, I believe. And the founder of this group was saying, wow, you know, it would be really nice if the people who lived on this block, when they thought of lights and Christmas lights, their first thought wasn't just emergency vehicles and police lights going down. What if during Christmas time, we just decorated this entire area with Christmas lights? And so he, the past couple weekends in Chicago, has organized these days that you can go down to different parts of this particular street and decorate houses there with Christmas lights. So I did that on Saturday, and I thought that was such a cool way to, again, get people to come out from different parts of the city. We got to know the people whose house we decorated, and I talked to them for a while about church and their family and how long they live in the block and so forth. And obviously just create like this like lovely Christmas attraction where there was not one beforehand. And so that was a pretty cool thing that I got to be a part of, and I'm really thankful that he organized it as well. So the group, if people wanted to Google, it is called My Block, My Hood, My City. And as far as finding me outside of this podcast, you can do so on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can support this podcast by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. Let's order ct.com slash quick to listen. Order ct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. Thank you, everyone, who rates and reviews the show. We truly appreciate it. Take care and see you next week. Bye.